Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We publish some great episodes in the month of December, including a rewatchables with Quentin Tarantino on Dunkirk. Sean Fennessy sat down with Greta Gerwig to talk about her new film, Little Women, on the big picture. And Adam Sandler and Kevin Garnett appeared on the Bill Simmons podcast to talk about their newest film, Uncut Gems. Happy New Year from The Ringer. Welcome to The Ringer NFL Show. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by Kevin Clark. Kevin, how are you doing, buddy? Daniel Snyder opened up his press conference today now from Ron Rivera by saying Happy Thanksgiving. It's incredible. This is the energy we're bringing into 2020. Having no idea what holiday it is, what month it is. He probably doesn't know which coach he just hired. Dan Snyder is on top of it. He never does this kind of stuff. Very rarely does he make public statements or do press conferences or all of that. But now Bruce Allen's fired, he has to do it. And maybe we're finding out why he doesn't do it more often. Well, it's kind of like the Dave Gettleman thing, where it's like, we need to hear from Dave Gettleman. And then Dave Gettleman gives a press conference and you're like, ooh, maybe not. Maybe we didn't need to hear about that. It was, it was so funny to watch just the difference between the Dave Gettleman press conference and the Chris Ballard press conference and the things that were coming yeah. out of them. Ballard like, gave a 72-minute press conference in which he was just blunt and analytical and being a good GM. That's He's all. just like, this is, this is all on me. Like, the team is 7-9, and nine and it's all my fault, and I'm, like, horrified by the idea. And Gettleman's like, we've got computer we got guys computers. Now. We're hiring the computer guys. So uh, it's right. just fantastic. Let's do a show. We're going to talk about some of the coaching carousel stuff. Obviously, there's been a lot of news this week. We still have some things that have to be ironed out, which we'll get to. And then we're just going to break down the wildcard games. Pretty straightforward. Does that work for you? It sure does. All right. What coaching stuff do you want to hit first? What do you think is the thing that stuck out most to you this week about a rumor, a hire, anything? Well, okay. So this might, this is probably going to end up being the most meaningless part of it all. But Jason Garrett's fourth day of exit interviews is some of the greatest. It's not job preservation because he will eventually lose his job as head coach. It's job stalling. This is like a a minor, like Seinfeld bit where he's just dragging it out. They've met. They're going to have a third meeting today, which is Thursday. That might be the end of it. But the fact that the the Redskins have already hired somebody. There's you know, they obviously are not starting a coaching search according to reports until everything is resolved. It is deeply funny. Uh, I read David Moore wrote in uh, yesterday that the Cowboys don't think they're at a competitive disadvantage by starting late, and I think that we all kind of know what that means is that they they think they can get targets that other teams can't. I mean, I don't think that the, the Cowboys are exactly competing against the Browns for some of these candidates. Uh, if the Cowboys want a candidate, they can pay more than anybody. Maybe there's a there's a structural issue as far as maybe a candidate doesn't want to work for Jerry or whatever. But when it comes to resources and all that stuff, the Cowboys will typically win in that regard. So what we're dealing with now is just the apparent inability for Jerry Jones to tell Jason Garrett that he doesn't work there anymore. I'm I'm really hoping, really truly hoping, that this is Jerry trying to stall, and he's just trying to convince Stephen to let him stay. There's like a two percent chance that that's what's going on, but that two percent is something I'm really grasping onto. Yeah, and so there were reports. Ed Werder had this this morning that maybe there's some thought that maybe he stays with the organization in some capacity. Yeah. That seems like it might be realistic. That's why these are happening. Jane Slater had kind of further, you know, there's a theory out there that maybe Jason might become the GM or something. But as Jane Slater pointed out, Jerry Jones won't call anybody the GM. He refuses to 
even believe in the concept of middlemen. Like there, it seems to be completely out of place for Jerry Jones to name anybody the GM, let alone Jason Garrett, who's never been a GM. I just think that it probably ends with him being in some sort of capacity where he shakes a lot of hands and just is Jason Garrett. Well, that was what he's been years. doing for the last decade. It's true. Just shaking <laughs> but hands. Now he won't, You've been to training he, camp. He won't be tasked with coaching the team now. It'll just be the shaking hands. There won't even be any sort of nebulous <laughs> kind of side to this where he's supposed to coach the team and all he does is shake hands. That'll only be shaking hands. I do think that's probably how this is going to go, right? Because it's it pain. It will pain Jerry to fire him. It will pain him, and I think that's why this is getting dragged out as long as it is. Yeah, I mean, listen, the investment that the Jones family has in Jason Garrett, I think it's overlooked a little bit. I think Breer is the one who pointed this out. When Jason Garrett was a player, he was in coaching meetings. They let him go into coaching meetings because they were grooming him. Then in '08. He gets basically a godfather offer to be their offensive coordinator. Uh, turned down the Ravens job, which if you want to talk about what ifs for the 2019 season, <sighs> you got to start with what happens if Jason Garrett becomes the Baltimore Ravens head coach and John Harbaugh does not. Everything, quite a few things change in that regard. Uh, but they paid him a ton of money to be the offensive coordinator. Then they promoted him midseason after Wade Phillips is firing. They give him a huge long rope to be the head coach, I think that firing him is the last of of a million last resorts. And I think that they're just grappling with that right now. I I, I don't, I would be quite surprised, as you said, I would put it at about 2% if he comes back, but we can't put it past him because the Jones family is extremely sentimental about Jason Garrett. I think they're extremely sentimental, but I also think there's another side to this. I was talking to some people in Dallas last week, and I'll write this when he eventually gets fired. But... I feel like there's a couple competing ideas within that building and competing motivations. We have the Cowboys in our minds, like you said. They can open up the checkbook. They can do these hugely ambitious things if they want to. But if there's a coach like Urban Meyer or somebody of that ilk that has had a lot of success as the CEO of essentially a franchise or an organization, I feel like there's going to be some tension with that person and Jerry Jones because Jerry loves having someone who he can keep his thumb on. He loves having someone that he can push around a little bit and where he is the one that controls the organization. So what do you want? Part of the reason they like Jason Garrett is because Jason Garrett is exactly that guy. So as they look to their next coaching hire, do you really want the guy that's going to help you try to win the most football games? As Jerry has said before, and he seems to be, that is in his mind what he really wants to do. Or do you want to bring somebody back that's easy to push around? Do you want a more, a lesser known coach, a candidate that doesn't seem like, again, the most ambitious choice, whether that's Greg Roman, another Mm -hmm. assistant, anything, so you can maintain control. And I think those are the kind of the two competing ideologies in that building about where they want to go. I would also, so first of all, let us not try to put ourselves in, in the shoes of Jerry Jones. That is... That is a fool's errand, and we're not going to accurately predict what he's he's, he's going to be doing here because he's Jerry Jones and he doesn't do things normally. I joked about this, but it's becoming more clear that if he were to hire someone and had his choice of everybody on the planet in this coaching cycle, it would be Jason Garrett, right? But that he cannot do that, and so he has to find the next best thing in his brain. This is a guy – there are a lot of owners who wouldn't have given Jason Garrett this much time. Jerry Jones is one of them. Having said that, so what I think about when I think about the structural things with this job, what you're talking about, I wonder where this ranks to most coaching candidates on the list of coaching jobs. Because there was a time when the New York Giants coaching job was incredibly sought after, incredibly sought after. 
uh, a stable organization, good players, you know, you win some Super Bowls, all that stuff. And now you got Dave Gellman there. Who knows how long he's going to be there? And then do you kind of get swept up if there's a coaching change or, or a front office change or whatever? I'm sure there's a lot of overthinking going on with the Giants job. And then you have the Panthers. Is David Tepper a good owner? We both think he has the capability to be, but this is his first hire. We'll see how that goes. So I think a lot of this comes down to whether or not there are better jobs than the Cowboys that are open. The Browns, I, for all of the roster talent they have and all that stuff, they just keep firing everybody every single year. It's a great place to go if you want to be paid for five years and work one. But I think that the, the amount of times they've pushed the reset button would give me an incredible amount of hesitation in in diving in if I had other options in Cleveland. So I think that you start to look around the coaching market, and yes, Dallas has its flaws, but I do still think it's a a top job for a very ambitious coach. Here's why I think it is the top job. And I understand that working for the Giants organization, that ownership group, is attractive to people. It no, has been I mean, now what? It, now like now it was. It's not like it was yeah. in terms of the structure on the football side, right. but the ownership group is still the same, and I think that ownership group is well regarded throughout the league. For, absolutely. But the problem with the Giants' job is just like the Panthers' job. There's uncertainty there. How long is Gettleman going to be there? Are you going to report to David Gettleman if you take that job? I just feel like the murkiness of what's going on in that situation and how long Gettleman might have a job is something that it's not very comfortable. Nope. It's it's disconcerting because you don't know. The Panthers are the same way. We have no idea what they're going to look like in the long term with Tepper and how that front office is going to shake out with Marty Herney kind of, again, overseeing everything. Is he going to be the one that is eventually in charge a year from now? All of that. For all the drawbacks of the Cowboys job, and working with Jerry and having to figure out all those dynamics, it's a certainty. You know well, what it is, even if it's not necessarily all that attractive to can some Can I add people. on to that? They have the best players. They have the best players, and they have a ton of resources. Yeah. So even if there is that worry about, you know, how is this going to work, and, you know, just the power structure and how influential is he going to be, you know, is he, when he wants to talk to the team for 15 minutes after the game before I do as the head coach, am I going to like that? And that, again, that's a problem for some people, but with all the other things that are certainties and attractive, I still think that's the best job. Uh, I would tend to agree when you think that when you bake in the fact that they have Dak Prescott, I'm assuming they paid Dak Prescott when you, you, you look at the, he'll be the quarterback talent. there next year either way. Exactly. And so I think that there's, there's a lot to be said for that job. I think that navigating the Jerry part of it is a challenge, but Jason Garrett showed it can be done where he, he got, you know, more power in the organization than most people. They Steven wrestled the Johnny Manziel draft card out of Jerry's hand, which might not have happened in 1998. So I think that there's that it is still a sought after job. I wonder if someone like Urban Meyer wants to to take that sort of crown jewel job. I don't I don't know the answer to that. We're gonna find out. There's reports that Cleveland has strong interest in Urban Meyer. I think that'd be very intriguing. Uh, but I think that Urban wants to I there's just from from reading the tea leaves, if Urban wants to take a shot at the NFL, he wants to have the best position to succeed. There's a reason that he went to Florida after Utah because he knew about the recruiting base. There's a reason he went to Ohio State because that was you know his home and also it's, it's just a massive program. I don't think he's going to jump to the NFL and and put himself at a disadvantage by taking a job like Cleveland or taking a job like Carolina where there's, there's cert- uncertainty all over the place, whether that's in the roster or the front office or ownership. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it has to be the right situation. If you were Dallas, what would you do? If in, a, in a perfect situation, a perfect scenario, what would be the outcome here if you were in charge? Uh, it would be somebody like Lincoln Riley or Matt Rule, 
right? Okay. So you you take the big swing. Yeah, I think so. The college guy. I, I think so. I think that there's there's probably a case to be made for someone like a Greg Roman, probably. But I think that I would go with the program builder. I think Lincoln Riley, all he does is just make people into Heisman candidates. And so I think that there's, like, in general, I would go for someone like that. I think that there's so many preconceived notions about college coaches that are from, I, I'm like, my parent, my, my, my mom, my uncles, all, all of them, they're all uh, huge college football fans. And they all have like Steve Spurrier brain where they're all just like, well, college coaches don't work in the NFL because they've seen so many college coaches fail in the NFL. And we talked about this at Christmas dinner, actually. And I just, it's such a different era now. I've talked to Lincoln Riley about, you know, the existence of the spread and all that stuff at the NFL level. He's, he's very up to that stuff. But I think a college coach coming to the NFL now, it is completely different than any other era in the history of football. College coaches can make that leap really, really easily. What do you think about the other jobs? I mean, obviously, Rivera in Washington, I think, makes perfect sense. And they're giving him a ton of power, it sounds like. I think that Snyder today compared it to the situations uh, in New England and Seattle in Kansas City where the head coach is kind of the figurehead of the entire organization. And I think that that's a good overcorrection for them compared to what they've had over the last few years. Yeah. That all makes perfect sense to me. They need somebody. It's, it's so weird for me to say this because I don't necessarily believe in all of this, but they really do need someone to change the culture. If anybody needs to change the culture, it's Washington. And if anybody's there to change the culture, it's Ron Rivera. I think in that regard, as sort of a... A, a culture cleansing experience. Uh, you're 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 looking for a guy like Ron Rivera who's going to go in there. I've talked a million times about this. He he likes to be in the locker room, actually in the locker room, because after Bullygate in 2013, 2014, he realized how how the locker room can just get away from you. And guys love playing for Ron Rivera. Yeah, and, they love it. And so he is in their lives. He brings his daughter around. Like he he makes it kind of a family deal. And I think that it's going to be this is the type of hire you need to make to is Ron Rivera gonna win a Super Bowl in Washington? Probably not. Is Washington as a franchise going to get better next year than they were this year? Absolutely. Okay, let's I want to talk about Cleveland for a second mm-hmm. because uh, that entire situation there and kind of the uncertainty and the mystery around how it's all going to go, who's going to report to who, based on what Jimmy Haslam said today, it sounds like the GM is going to have the 53-man roster final say. The GM and the coach are reporting individually to Haslam. Um, and then there's that whole Paul Podesta elements to all of this. Who do you think is the right person for that job? And would you have concerns about taking that job, even when you take into account how much talent they have? Would I have concerns about taking the Browns job? Yeah. Yeah. Like how like how bad how big are the concerns? Like here's the way I view you cannot whether or not John Dorsey was the answer, or Sashi Brown was the answer, or Mike Pettin was the answer, or Ray Farmer was the answer, or any of these people that they fired, whether or not they were the answer, you're never actually gonna find out. If you don't give them, Hugh Jackson is the longest tenured Browns coach this decade. Hugh Jackson. Okay. That's where we're at right now. And you're never actually going to find out unless you give someone three, four years to build something. It's, it's funny to me, picture a chessboard. Okay. And this is how NFL teams view things. Picture a chessboard, the Patriots who play the long game. Look at the chessboard. They know where every piece needs to be. They will know where every piece is going. And they know where the other team's pieces are going and where they will be, right? 
The Browns have a chessboard in front of them. And what they do is they eat the pieces. Over and over again, they just eat it. We'll just start a new game. I ate the pieces. I'm sorry. Like, it's that. <laughs> That's where the Cleveland Browns are. And I, some of the moves they've made of the last decade have been good. Many of them have been bad. But one of the things that they've done that has canceled everything out is stopping what they're doing in midstream over and over and over again. Sticking with a plan is better than rewriting over and over and over the same plan. I just don't think they know how the pieces on the board work. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They haven't looked at them for more than 20 minutes. They don't learn the rules of the game. I don't even think that they understand like what the structure is. Like this piece does this thing. What does the night do? What is this? The night goes two and then one. This seems complicated. Everybody's fired. And let's say, well, what if, you know, do we really want the night to do that or do we want something else to happen? They just don't know what kind of structure and what kind of organization they want to be. And they keep changing their minds about it every two weeks. And there's just no way to have any sort of continuity or success when you build like that or when you don't build, when you just keep starting over. It's just, I, I really, it's so frustrating to watch, I'm assuming as a Browns fan. And it just reminds me of that Seth Wickersham story where even if you bring in different guys and even if the players are better and all this stuff, if you have an organization that just has no vision for the way it wants to be structured for who answers to who, and you keep changing that up over and over and over again, it, this is what's going to happen. You're just going to be stuck in neutral for eternity. Justice for Sashi. I, somebody, I think maybe it was Jeff Darlington said the other day that if he was a betting man, it would be something where you know the GM Stefanski. would be Andrew Barry, but Deep Podesta would be in charge, and Kevin Stefanski would be the head coach. I That makes sense to me. I it mean, makes sense they, to me until... January of 2021, when it's when it inexplicably stops making sense to Jimmy Haslam. Do I think, <laughs> listen, what happened in Cleveland this year was a disaster. Freddie Kitchens was the wrong coach. The neglecting the offensive line, which is something everybody was talking about, including us, over the summer, but we thought they could overcome it and, and be a 10-win team. Because d- good teams can overcome good a bad offensive well, lines the problem with right was, structure. The problem was that di- they just didn't have the players we thought they did outside of the offensive line. And they didn't have the coach. I don't think they had together. the plan we thought they did. They didn't have anything. Uh, that, they didn't have anything. Yes. Uh, 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 they didn't have anything. And so they were a disaster. But you can't... I remember it was actually in a, in a funny twist. It was Dave Gellman who told me this. When you fire people, you're giving up about... You're basically giving up about a full season. When he fired people. That's why he didn't fire anybody when we got to Carolina. You're basically giving up about a full season. And so you're essentially saying every single year that you're, you, the Browns are in a constant flux of being a year away and they can never build on anything. And the NFL is a really hard league. Look at Kyle Shanahan. Kyle Shanahan, when I was down in Miami, uh, Chris Greer, the Dolphins general manager, talked about, talked about San Francisco and the fact that they, had a nice plan, but then they got pushed back a year because of the Jimmy G injury, and then they popped. Like, that's what happens with teams, is that they have, maybe they have a plan, someone gets injured, and then they have to delay it a year. Plans change. Life is what happens when we're making plans, right? And I think that if you just keep destroying and burning your plan every single year, you are constantly in a state of disarray, and you will never solve anything. My only wish, I don't care if the Browns win or lose, my only wish for the fan base is that whatever decision they make, Jimmy Haslam just throws away the keys for like three years and doesn't touch anything. I think that's what you have to do. I mean, there's just no other way. The other guy that I think is intriguing for that job, and I think he'd actually do a pretty good job with it, it might be the kind of guy they need is Mike McCarthy. 
Now, I know that I was not very kind to him near the end of his tenure there, but I think that we've seen as they've changed over kind of how hard it would be to coach Rodgers at this point when he's not super willing to play in structure all the time and everything else. And I feel like the challenges of that job have kind of come to light here with the way that this season's gone for them, even if they've been pretty good. And I think that he could be pretty good for a guy like Baker Mayfield as somebody who gives that uh, Baker some structure who Mm -hmm. comes in and again, is an adult in the room. So I, I think that... I feel differently about him now than I probably would have a year ago. I think he can do a pretty good job for somebody. I agree. And this is something Roger Sherman and I talked about a couple weeks ago. If you're going to do the retread coach, don't you want someone like Mike McCarthy who's assembled a staff and is analyzing tape, is analyzing analytics, the trends of the game, an old dog trying to learn new tricks? That's what you want. If you're going to go that route, you need someone who's decided to modernize themselves, and Mike McCarthy's done that. So I, I don't listen. Do I think he's Lincoln Riley? No, but I do think that he has the capability to be a good head coach in the NFL. I think that. I mean, obviously, him putting out all that information is him lobbying for a job. But I do think it's encouraging. Yeah, but dude, like I, John I mean, Fox couldn't have done that three years ago because he didn't you're do absolutely it. Right. Yep, I tell you, you're right. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that this is a clear like look at what yeah, I'm doing. But at least thing, he did not. Smart. Yeah, he, he, I like most coaches can't say that and to pump themselves up. They just say I'm ready. They just call up a reporter and say I'm I'm ready to rock. Let's go hire hire me. You're John Fox oh. all of a sudden. Yeah, we we couldn't get out of this podcast without me getting sad about the Bears. It was an inevitability. Okay. Well, after they fire Matt Nagy last year, they're going to have to because every owner hires the opposite of the last coach. And so, so they're going to bring hire, John Fox back again? Yeah, they're going to bring John Fox back. Or no, there'll just be some retread. Jack Del Rio is going to put together an awesome coach in, uh, an awesome defense in Washington. He'll get the nod. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, I'm just thinking of tw- the 2021 Bears coached by Jack Del Rio or Marvin Lewis. is just not a life I want to live. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get started here. Bills at Texans, the 130 game on Saturday. What are you looking for? Well... I'm looking at Tredavious White. This is going to be, I think, a potential for him to have another sort of national coming out party. I think that there's been a lot of talk, especially after Stephon Gilmore last week got torched by the Fitz magic, that Tredavious White's the best cornerback in football, and we're going to see Deshaun Watson, DeAndre Hopkins, and that offense against Tredavious White. I'm excited about that. I think that the Texans are going to win this game. I think they're the better team. I think they're at home. But I think the Bills' defense— is really good, and I think that this is an in- in a very, very interesting matchup for Josh Allen. As someone you've spent a lot of time around Josh Allen, what are you expecting between him and this Texans defense? With, by the way, J.J. Watt. Yeah, if you look at the stats for Josh Allen with and without pressure this season, it's pretty much night and day. You know, his with no pressure, it's 7.1 yards per attempt, 15 touchdowns, 5 interceptions. Mm-hmm. Under pressure, Five touchdowns, four interceptions, 5.8 yards per attempt. He changes pretty much more than any other quarterback in the league when he has to deal with guys around his feet. And J.J. Watt coming back is a massive deal for the Texans in that regard because they could not get pressure when Watt was not in the game. They really had no one else to get after the quarterback. So that part of it, I think, is huge. I'm also curious to see what Houston's going to do on the back end. Because Bradley Roby coming back has been a boon for their defense. The defense is not very good, but they did not, ha- they did not have another corner <laughs> when he was not playing. So is he going to be able to kind of take away John Brown? Or are they going to be able to take, some, take away things down the field? I really think that it's not a coincidence that Cole Beasley has played much better over the second half of the season and that his production has taken an uptick. I talked to him last week about it, and he said that you know it, he was hurt during the pre- – 
offseason. So he didn't really get to start working with Josh Allen until the middle of the year in training camp. Mm-hmm. And they run so many option routes, all of that stuff, that it took them a while to get on the same page. They've looked a lot more in sync recently. You're looking at Cole Beasley going against a guy like Vernon Hargraves in this game, which is an advantage for Buffalo. So if they can keep Josh Allen upright, I do think they can take advantage of this Houston secondary that's a little banged up and isn't very good. Who do you think wins this one? I would pick the Texans, but I also think the Bills are a pretty good matchup for them because the Bills secondary is so good. And I think they're, they've really done a great job over the last couple of seasons, essentially under McDermott, of taking away shots down the field. Mm-hmm. The Texans want to be a vertical passing game. And Will Fuller being back in this game is huge. I mean, it's if you look at the stat, the splits for Deshaun Watson with and without Will Fuller on the field, it's amazing how different it is. He really unlocks this offense. But again, the Bills are very good at taking away vertical concepts. So I just really think it's an interesting kind of cat and mouse matchup between teams that want to do a certain thing and a defense that's good at taking that thing away. And I also think Tredavious White is a good player. He's a very good player. But Deshaun, or he at times can get a little bit handsy mm-hmm. and he gets get called for some pass interference penalties for legal contact penalties. If you go back and watch the Dallas game, even though the Bills played very well, you know he got dinged a couple times for those. DeAndre Hopkins is going to beat the shit out of him in this game. I don't know how well it's going to go, but he's a, he's already a super physical receiver, and I do think that is the best route against White, who only weighs about 190. He's much smaller than DeAndre Hopkins. So I'm really curious to see what that back and forth of that matchup is going to look like. Is this the game you think is the most evenly matched this weekend? I think Seattle and Philly's pretty evenly matched. What? Do you not? Uh, I think they're both just so banged up. We'll get to that game. But I think Seattle's going to win. We'll get to that. Let's, let's wait. Let's wait. Let's wait. I wouldn't that. be surprised. I like, I'd I, like I, to hear your argument. I do. I think that, I, listen, we, this is a pro. We have hitched our wagon to the Eagles to an unfortunate degree. We are, we are being dragged into the ocean. It's like in Hobbs and Shaw. We're in the truck and we're being dragged by a helicopter onto the ocean by the Philadelphia <laughs> did you Eagles. Watch, did you like just watch Hobbs and Shaw? I did. <laughs> it's great. Well, no, it was actually Rusillo. I've seen it. Russillo, uh, you've seen it? I saw it on an airplane yeah. uh, two days ago. And no, Rusillo I and like I a month ago. had a long talk about it on Slow News Day. They got cut. Um, but it was, I, really, I'm, I really enjoyed myself. It was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I am a very big supporter of the franchise. So I was definitely going to see it. I saw it. I had a great time. I wasn't surprised whatsoever. But it's just funny. You're dropping Hobbs and Shaw references like two months after the movie comes out. Well, hey, it's new to me. It's, it's great. I All love right. it. Uh, so right. we both picked the Texans? Yeah, I'm going to pick the Texans. But I definitely see a world in which the Bills win. I think their oh. defense is so good. I mean, it... I've talked about him on the podcast a hundred times. Micah Hyde is one of my favorite players in the league. And I just think this is the type of game where he and Jordan Poyer can make a couple plays to shut down that down the field passing game for Houston. And if they do that, I'm not sure how many answers the Texans are going to have. Um, last thing for you. Uh, everybody read my story. I wrote about Deshaun Watson today on the ringer.com um, about his involvement in something called the black quarterbacks club. Uh, him, Warren Moon, Jalen Hurts, Justin Fields, those guys, they got together and they're they're kind of creating a network for black quarterbacks. It's a really interesting um, thing that they're doing, so go read about it on Ringer.com. Um, go I, check that out. Yep. All right. I agree with you. Texans, let's go. Okay. Uh, Patriot, or excuse me, Titans at Patriots. I will be at this game. I'm really looking forward to this. I, I think that there are just so many layers 
to this game, to what the Patriots look like on offense and defense right now. I went back and I watched the Dolphins Patriots game a little bit today. And the Dolphins had a lot of success on early downs with play action concepts. And I just think by throwing the ball on first and 10 and using those sorts of designs, you really take away some of the creativity that the Pats have on passing downs when they can throw some exotic blitzes at you. The Titans offensive line is good. The Patriots front four is not that good at getting pressure without sending extra guys. I think the Titans can absolutely get some chunk plays on play action on early downs in this game. I don't know what to make of that Dolphins game. That was one of the strangest. You watch that game the whole time. I watched it from a Ravens press box and you watch that game the whole time. And it was almost like one of those college football games where the really crappy team is hanging on and then they just the 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 favorite delivers the knockout blow and it was over and you're just kind of waiting around for that. And they score with what three minutes left and everyone says, Oh, pick classic Patriots. And then they get burnt. Their incredible defense, which we saw contain some of some really, really good teams throughout the year. Um, not everybody was shut out, not everybody saw ghosts, but they did win more games than they lost this year. And they can't stop Ryan Fitzpatrick and Devontae Parker. And it makes me, it's like the end of a movie. It's like the end of the sixth sense where everything just starts to, to click. And you just wonder if, you know, we talked about this actually off air. You know, we thought so much about the 49ers defense and the Patriots defense at different parts this season. And now I still think both those teams have a lot of talent and good coaching. And I think they're generally good defenses. But now I, I'm just worried about trusting them having seen just that game. Yeah, I don't blame you. And I think that you know we've seen over time, and it's been proven out over time, that defensive success in the NFL in the modern era is really based on the types of offenses you're playing and the types of quarterbacks you're playing, especially. And a team like the 49ers is a perfect example. They played some of the worst quarterbacks in the league over the first half of the season. The quarterbacks got much better in the second half, and their defense has fallen back to earth a little bit. So when you're a Patriots team, that's about to face a Titans offense that looks pretty damn good right now. I think you have to wonder just how good is this Patriots defense really? Where is Derrick Henry? Where does Derrick Henry rank for you on best players on the field in this game? Mm, I don't know. Pretty high. I don't think he's even the best player on the Titans offense. Who would that be for AJ Brown? Oh, AJ Brown. I, I think agree. AJ Brown's a monster. Well, I only if, say that because, you know, there's, I think some Patriots reporters have, have made this connection too. But this weekend, it's going to be raining, might get a little bit of snow. It's going to be in the 30s. It's going to be absolutely, it's going to be great when I'm having to walk from my car to Gillette. It's going to be absolutely disgusting. And it might end up being a bit of a, a slog. That's fair. I think that's a really good way to think about it. And I believe in the Titans' ability to kind of manufacture offense. You know, they've done a lot of that this year. It's It's been one of my favorite parts about watching them is that they've really put Tannehill in some excellent situations. You know, whether it's using a ton of play action, but even beyond that, I love some of the screen designs they've used. I love the way they've creatively gotten the ball in Brown's hands, not just down the field, but after the catch. He's been the best after the catch receiver in the NFL this year. And... I think when it's raining and you can't really trust a down-the-field passing game, they're going to be able to find answers against this team. So I'll be really curious to what it looks like. I think the, the, the most important thing for the Titans is staying out of obvious passing situations because you really aren't going to want to deal with the Pats when they can send those sorts of pressures. Even like on a second down, you know, when you're having, when you think you can use some play action and they're going to send a slot blitz, something like that. I feel like the Patriots are going to have to get creative 
in dictating the action to Tennessee because if you let them be the offense they want to do, they use play action, all of that stuff, I think that they can be really dangerous. Who's going to win this game, Robert? I, I'm going to pick New England, but I don't feel good about it. Uh, what is there a single reason you should feel good about the Patriots offense right now? No. No. Name, names. I mean, like, I, I listen. The only but what names? What names? Well, I mean, I mean, Tom Brady's been is pretty good, but I mean, that's I, it. What, no, no, that's I, it. I, I understand. That. No, 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 I understand that. But if that's been, there have been times where that's been enough. What I'm saying is, is that the reason to think the Patriots can deliver on offense is just because we've thought they couldn't deliver on offense before. That's it, and that's not very. That's not a very good reason, and that's part of the problem with this whole thing is that's not a very good reason, but it's happened so many times that all of us are afraid of counting them out. I think they win this week and lose in Kansas City next week. That's been my prediction for since they lost the bye last week, and it remains my prediction. I just would not be surprised if Tennessee won this game. I wouldn't be surprised if Tennessee won this game at all. I just I know I'm probably going to get, I'm probably going to regret this, but this just feels different, doesn't it? And we've seen him produce without high-end playmakers before. It didn't feel different until last week. That Dolphins game was awful. I think their de- their offenses look pretty bad recently, man. No, but I thought that they had a defense that was so elite that they had a chance against anybody, including. I think that's still true. I man, I yeah, I I think their defense has to be so freaking good, so unbelievably good to to get their offense in a position to win against Kansas City and Baltimore. When they were sitting there last week. And trying to find answers on offense. And we're force-feeding Nikhil Harry in all these different ways. That's problematic, man. When you That's your answer. When you're having to some, find some way to move the ball, that, that's not the right answer. And I just don't think they have it. In other years, I would have said, when the passing game was struggling the way they are, you sit there, you line up in 21 personnel, and you pound teams to death, and you use your play-action game off of it. They used to do that all the time in the playoffs when they needed to turn somewhere. But right now, Landon Roberts is your fullback. The running game hasn't been very good the whole season. I just don't know if there are avenues for them the same way there have been in years past. Right. I, I think we thought we knew the path, which was their defense keeps them in every game, and they make enough plays on offense, and they win a game 21-20, to 20, right, against Kansas City or whomever. And when they had the bye, all they had to do was win that game, and then they could, you know, we'll see about Lamar. I still think that, the, obviously, the Ravens are going to win the Super Bowl. That's my prediction. But I think that now, having to play the extra game, having to play a really intriguing team in Tennessee, then going on the road against Kansas City, like, I just think that path gets um, more and more difficult. I think so, too. And I absolutely could see them losing this weekend. I still think that the best plan is probably to line up in those heavier personnel packages and use that as a way to keep the Titans base defense on the field. Because one of the best things the Titans do is their third down packages are really exotic. They do a great job of sending some unique pressures, unique coverages. And if you can kind of keep them in a more basic defense and use that as a way to one, run the ball and two throw the ball out of those sets, I think that's the best plan. But I still don't know how much confidence I have in that plan right now. I can't believe the Patriots are going to win the Super Bowl. I know. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be fucking unwatchable. <laughs> They're going to win every single game 16 to 10, yep. and I'm not going to enjoy any of it. Okay. That sucks. 
Vikings at Saints. I cannot believe the Saints are eight-point favorites in this game. I guess it's not that shocking considering the way they're playing right now. I love this New Orleans team, man. I, I think that they're one of the only teams in recent years that I can sit here as the playoffs are about to start and say, that team can win three road games to get to the Super Bowl. Well, they're playing at home. Uh, oh, excuse me. The week. two road games after yeah. this and go to the Super Bowl. So, yes. first of all, Mike Zimmer is doing the nobody believed in us thing because they weren't in an NFL in the video, NFL yeah. promo <laughs> video, which I like. It's a nice touch. It's a nice it's touch. A good, it's a nice job by him. I get it's it. It's a nice touch. Um, I'm with you. I really like this Vikings team. I really like their talent. I think that Kirk Cousins has had a nice season, obviously, but I just think this is the end of the line. I, I think that the, the Saints are are a complete, really good team. We had a discussion last week about whether or not they were the best team in the NFC. I don't think they are. I think it's Niners, but they're they're better than the Vikings. I'm I'm really worried about how the Vikings are going to stop Michael Thomas because I just don't think there's an answer. Though their corners this year have been bad. And I remember before the season started, I was talking to people I know they're like Courtney Co- like Courtney Courtney Cronin, Matthew Collar, and they were, you know, in the same way that a lot of beat writers and just press cores about certain teams have irrational fears about those teams because they think about it too much. And they were talking about how there wasn't enough depth and talent at corner and I was like, "What are you guys talking about?" They have like 16 corners on this team. And they were right. They were totally right. And I just did not see it coming. And it has been a weakness for this group all year. And I feel like this is the type of game where Thomas can get 15 catches for 200 yards. Because guys like Eric Kendricks, you know, you still have Harrison Smith. Anthony Harris is an excellent season. You know, I think this is a game where Kamara and guys like Jared Cook could get blanks. But I just don't know what the answer is going to be against Thomas. I really don't. I'm with you on that one. I mean, think about it this way. And you wrote about this on the ringer.com about just the relationship between Peyton and Breeze. But at this point, that, that relationship is, is set in stone. It was a great piece. The relationship Thanks, between Michael Thomas and Drew Breeze, where basically their passes are essentially as automatic as it gets at any point in NFL history. No, no, nobody's had a connection like this where they're regularly completing 80, 90% of their passes in some situations. I think that's so fascinating to me how efficient those passes are between Breeze and Thomas. And I just think that it's going to take a special defense to break that up. And I don't think the Vikings have that. I don't think they're that special. I, I, I think that they're a good defense with a lot of nice pieces on it, but I think that the weaknesses are too obvious. And I talked to, for that piece, I talked to Mike New, who was the quarterback's coach for the couple of years where Mike Lombardi, Mike Lombardi, where Joe Lombardi was the office coordinator for the Lions. He was just telling me that watching them obsess over the details every single week is the coolest part about working with those two guys because they find these little tiny weaknesses in individual players on other teams and they devise ways for essentially Michael Thomas mostly to take advantage of them. You know, whether it's a a slight difference in a split here and there or whether they have him run a backside route that typically would be resolved for somebody else. They're so good at taking this base offense that they have that's already very smart and tweaking it in just tiny little ways to make them completely unpredictable and to get guys in certain situations. You know, one of the things that all the backup quarterbacks told me is that Peyton and Breeze are so, so good over the course of the week at finding different little ways to give Drew information before the snap mm-hmm. and just create confidence with him going certain places with the ball. And it they've really came up with a way to get Thomas open or in a situation to catch the football every single time that he's the first read on a play. 
And it just, it's really underrated how streamlined the communication has become and how important that communication is between those guys. It's unlike anything in the league. Reporting that story was fascinating. And, and just all the different things that they do that other people don't do. And I think that, again, with a defense that has very clear weaknesses, they're going to find a way to take advantage of them. I remember reporting a story last year um, about Breeze and the offense he creates with guys who've only scored one touchdown because I think he's... Mm-hmm. I think he's thrown to like 75 different guys. And so there's a handful of guys who have just one touchdown, um, fullbacks, third string tight ends and all that stuff. And every single story was almost the exact same, which was it wasn't supposed to be anything close to a pass to that person. And the pre-snap adjustments were just unbelievable. And Breeze was able to to do whatever he needed to do to get that touchdown, right? That's how Cree creates offense. But in reporting that, I remember... People talking about how, you know, if you think that it's that's impressive. I mean, what's really impressive is when he finds one of these targets, a guy like Marquise Colston or a guy like Michael Thomas or a guy in like 2013 like Jimmy Graham. The connection they have is otherworldly. And that's the, the, the brilliance of Drew Brees is the ability to make any connection with random guys and then an elite connection with elite guys. That's why they're so dangerous is that you really have to defend every single blade of grass, no matter who's on the field. Even though Thomas is a high-volume guy, they're going to throw the ball to whoever's open. That's what Josh McCown said to me. It was so interesting. He said, "It's the Saints, even though they're brilliant, and even though Drew has this unbelievable memory and they have this Rolodex of answers, the reason that they're great on offense is they do what makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. They just, they do, they, they create plays that make sense. They throw the ball to the guy that makes sense. They never do things that are in, intentionally uncomfortable or it's intentionally hard to do. They just do the things that make sense. And sometimes that's throwing the ball to a fullback that's been there for a week that happens to be open on a certain design because it makes sense to do. And again, that might be boiling it down in a way that's a little too simple, but I do think that more teams not enough teams do that. Not enough teams just do what should be done. They do. They try to do things that are way too difficult just for the sake of doing them. That you just you describe the NFL exactly. <laughs> Let's do this thing because it's what we've it's what we're comfortable with. Also, it's really hard, but we don't care because finding out something, finding out the easy way to do something is hard. Exactly. So the one other thing I want to say before we move on from this game, uh, Derek Klassen, who does really good work on sure quarterbacks, does. he wrote a, he wrote a, a piece for. Um, Football Outsiders today that I read that I thought was really cool. And it was essentially just about how certain teams, because of their flexibility and athleticism on the back end, can defend the play action concepts that the Vikings use. And the one he pointed out specifically was they do this play where there's a post on one side and a kind of a deep over route behind it on the other side. It's a staple of the Shanahan Kubiak kind of system. It, teams run it all the time. You'll, if you think back to the, um, the Eagles Vikings game, they ran it for a touchdown to Devante or to, to Stefan Diggs. It's like, that's what, that's the play design. And the saints do something where they kind of shift the way they defend it. And they can only do it because they have really smart athletic corners, but they've done it consistently. And I think that if the Vikings can't get those big plays down the field, it's going to be really difficult for them to win this game. I think that's when you're a worse team or lesser team, you need those game-changing high-variance outcomes. And I just, against this Saints team, I just don't think they're going to be there for Minnesota. I agree. All right, let's get to the who is more injured bowl between the Seahawks and the Eagles this week. I'm sitting here looking at the injury report, and it's just, it would be, it's not funny because guys are injured and that's not great, but it's just staggering 
how many names are on the list for these two teams. I mean, it's unbelievable that they've managed to both get here. Well, I think that it's it's more impressive that the Seahawks put together the kind of season they put together because they were— Their injuries also came later. They, but. Yeah, and but they were half a yard away or one pass interference non-call away from, from winning the division and, and not playing in this game. But I think—listen, we've seen enough evidence of the team that limps into the playoffs and shouldn't have made the playoffs but were in a weak division then they randomly win their home playoff game to know that the Eagles can win this game. Absolutely. And I've been incredibly impressed with Carson Wentz the last month, six weeks, just kind of, you know, guy signs on Christmas Eve and all of a sudden he's he's making big plays on Sunday. That's that's incredible. That's almost like what we're talking about with Drew Brees. The ability to con- create offense with anybody is a skill. But I feel like the Seahawks, even despite the injuries, are just a significantly better team in, in 2020, in 2019, uh, this season. I just think that uh, this season they've had, I understand the injuries, but this is... I actually did not even consider picking the, the the Eagles in this game. I will probably pick the Seahawks as well, just because even with all their injuries, I still feel like Wilson's kind of an X factor. I think that their passing game can still do some things. I, I just, you look at all of the injuries on the Phillies offense, and I know that it's they've succeeded with it before. You, they've succeeded with it before in the last couple of weeks, but now like Brandon Brooks is just gone. So Lane Johnson may play, and that would be huge if they could get him back. But I just... And now that Miles Sanders is hurt, now yep. you can't really – he was such an important guy for them to manufacture offense because he did such a great job in space as a receiver when they really didn't have any other weapons. And now that he – he didn't practice on Wednesday. He's questionable for this game. It's just – I think they're going to have such a hard time moving the ball, even against the Seattle defense that is not very good and has been really struggling to get after the quarterback since Jadevian Clowney has been hurt. Yep. So I don't know what to make of this game. I just think it's such a mess. And I, I guess I'm just going with Russell Wilson because he's the best player on the field. I, I wish it was more nuanced than that. Lane Johnson had what was called a four to six week injury. This is via John Clark. And this would be week four on Sunday. And Lane Johnson was at practice today working really hard trying to get back to practice. He was, he was doing limited work. That's huge for them. Lane Johnson is an elite player. That's why they signed him to a big extension. That's why we've seen the on-off numbers for Lane Johnson. That would be a massive boost. But they are still so injured. Guys like Zach Ertz are banged up. We talked about the receivers. Brandon Brooks is is a big loss for them on short notice. You know, he's out for the rest of the season as of last Sunday. So I think that there's just, man, it's at some point you just can't win a playoff game that injured and I think that the Seahawks in general are less injured I think so too and I think that the strength of Seattle's defense is essentially up the middle you know you have Bobby Wagner you have KJ Wright they play a ton of base and I think against the Eagles team it's going to use a lot of 12 personnel that actually makes sense and Quandre Dix has been a huge pickup for them and I just think that Philly needs to throw the ball in the middle of the field to win this game. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know if you're going to be able to do that against the Seattle team. I think that's where they're pretty good. Obviously, Shaq Griffin's a good corner, but I feel like the Seahawks are less prone to get taken advantage of with the type of offense the Eagles are going to need to play if they're going to win this game. Man, the NFC East. It's brutal, man. I mean, it's just, I cannot believe that the fucking Cowboys are not playing this game. I can't even believe it. Well, I can't. It's just like... <laughs> It's the Cowboys. There's are kind so- of a there's kind of a Bill Parcells. You are what your record says you are type deal about the Dallas Cowboys this year. Like they kept blowing games they should have won, and that should tell you something. At some point, you cease true. to be a good team. 
I think that's probably true. I just, it still is so shocking to me that this version of the Eagles team is playing in the playoffs and a Cowboys team that showed the ceiling they did all season is not. I, so what matters? Right. Coaching matters. GMs yeah. matter. It really did. Culture right. matters. I think that's all we got, buddy. I'm, uh, I'm really excited for my schlepping down to Gillette this week in a rainstorm. <laughs> it's it's going to be really enjoyable. I'm going to be the one that loses a scarf this time, even though I don't have one. You should get one. I just didn't Dude, I've been, I've been searching for a scarf similar to the one that I lost in Foxborough, and I just can't find one for the value. I'm like one of these teams that loses like a Darren Sproles type, and I'm looking for a Darryl, Darren Sproles type afterwards, and there's just nothing like it. I've been on the road for a week, and I don't have that big of a suitcase, so I had to pack kind of light. Uh-huh. So I only have one jacket, which is not that heavy. I don't have that. I don't have a scarf. So it's. I hope it's not going to be that cold because there's really no good situation about it's getting to be in the that 30s. stadium. We're going to need you to get a jacket. I have a jacket. I have a well, jacket. You need no, a heavier not, jacket. No, nah, I'll be okay. It's fine. It's fine. I'll wear like a big sweater. <laughs> I got plenty of big sweaters. This is done. I'll be fine. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. All right. That's all we got, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening to the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. We will be back on Sunday.